Let us pray. Almighty and most gracious God, draw near to us as you have promised to do. Pour your spirit upon us as you have promised to do. Renew our hearts and our minds, transform us as you have promised to do. Not for our sake, but for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, whom we have been united to, whom we have been gathered up to, in whom we find our rest, our peace, our salvation. So evermore, O Father, be with us for the sake of your Son, Jesus, through whom we pray. Amen. So as I said, it's Transfiguration Sunday. We've come to the last Sunday of Epiphany. After this, on Wednesday it becomes Lent. We enter into the great season of Lent, the season of fasting and preparation, a season of repentance, looking toward the cross of Christ. But here, right before all of that, we stop on the mountain and see the transfiguration of Jesus. We see the reality that he is no mere man, and we see here in his ministry how he reveals that he is no mere man. Some might say that this is the ultimate revelation of Jesus as the Son of God during his ministry. But it's not. The transfiguration is the penultimate. It is the second to best revelation of Jesus' glory. It's penultimate because there's another place in the Gospels where the glory of God, the glory of Jesus is manifested in an even greater way. In St. John's Gospel, he continually points toward that moment. Jesus continually says, It is not time to reveal my glory. It is not time for me to be made known in that way. My hour has not come. The ultimate place of Jesus' glory is his very crucifixion. On that cross, it becomes his place of enthronement as he takes upon himself the sins of the world. As he takes upon himself and becomes our substitute, removing our sin, dealing with our sin. And in that moment of crucifixion, in that time of crucifixion, Jesus reveals the glory of God for he reveals the fullness of the compassion and the mercies and the graces of God toward his creation. Then in the fallenness of creation, God himself becomes a man and steps into a place of receiving the judgment that creation deserves, that his creation deserves, that his people deserve. And there the glory is hidden in the midst of that judgment, but it is the great revelation when you have eyes to see that that is the glory of God occurring in that moment, bloody and beaten upon the cross, pouring out his blood for the sake of the people pouring out his blood in order to redeem and cleanse and bring new life to all who would turn to him. But here, just months before his crucifixion, Jesus goes up on that mountain to enter into the penultimate moment of his glory. Just because it's penultimate does not mean that it's not important. 
Just because it's second to best does not mean that it's not a great and glorious moment to see and to behold and to experience here. And it's necessary. This is a necessary part of Jesus' movements toward Jerusalem, toward his crucifixion. He's already set his face toward Jerusalem. We've passed by that hinge moment that we haven't read about yet this, this church year. The hinge moment in the, all the Gospels where Jesus says, Who do the people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Peter blurts out, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That is the hinge. Everything changes in that moment in the Gospels. Jesus turns and faces himself toward Jerusalem. And he begins explicitly prophesying about his death and his resurrection that is to come. And the disciples are continually confused by that reality that Jesus is going to die when they get to Jerusalem. It doesn't make sense. And here in our text, Jesus has just told them, after predicting his own crucifixion, after hearing Peter confess that he is the Christ, the Messiah of the living God, he tells them, if you're going to follow me, you must take up your cross. And eight days after that, Jesus goes up on the mountain with James and John and Peter to pray. To prepare. To make himself ready for that crucifixion. For that redemption that is coming for this world. The season of Epiphany is all about that revelation of Jesus. More and more he's being revealed each week. From the first day of Epiphany with the Magi coming to worship Jesus that we celebrate to the, set, to the first Sunday of Jesus' baptism, beginning his ministry, sending him forth in the power of the Holy Spirit with the Father speaking those wonderful words, You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. All the way down now through these many past weeks to this moment of transfiguration, this moment on the mountain, all of it leading us toward the crucifixion. And here we are preparing our hearts now for Lent, preparing for that time of fasting, of prayer, of almsgiving. And we need a vision of Jesus. We need a reminder that He is the Son of God, that He is not some mere man, that He is not an ordinary gentleman in that world. He is not just a really good teacher who can get to the hearts and minds of people, but He is God incarnate. The Son of God come down from heaven, knit together in the womb of Mary and born. The people have more or less only seen his human nature, but here the disciples are given an explicit vision, an explicit witness of that divinity shining through his humanity. That divinity permeating outward, coming from within him because within he is truly God and yet truly man. All in preparation for his suffering and death for the redemption of the world. And so here they go up the mountain, verse 28 says, to pray. This happens throughout the Gospels. Jesus is always separating himself to go pray, to go prepare himself for what is to come. He always goes up on a mountain. And I love that Luke differs a little bit from the rest, from the other two Gospels that speak of the transfiguration. And Matthew and Mark, they both say after six days. After saying these things, six days later he goes up on the mountain, whereas Luke says now about eight days after these sayings, after telling them about taking up their cross, after 
telling them about his death and resurrection. It's coming about eight days later, Jesus went up on a mountain. One commentator said, this could be an ever so slight reference to new creation. But remember, the number eight has lots of moments in Scripture. You have eight souls who are saved on the ark who are the beginning of new creation after the flood. Here we have a baptismal font with eight sides to remind us of the eighth day, that Sunday that Jesus was raised from the dead. The new creation begins on the eighth day. And here Luke gives us a tiny little hint with that. About eight days later, they went up on a mountain. They went up to a place of revelation. They went up to a place where God was going to reveal himself because mountains play that role in Scripture. Mountains are places where God speaks, where he reveals himself to his people. There's, of course, Mount Moriah with the sacrifice, the almost sacrifice of Isaac by Abraham. Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb where Moses encounters the burning bush and then where he returns to receive the law. He hears God speak. Abraham heard God speak. Mount Nebo itself, where Moses goes up to die, he has a revelation from God to see the entirety of the promised land, to see the great and glorious fulfillment of God's promise at the Exodus. And of course, then there's Mount Zion, Mount Zion itself. Jerusalem, the foreshadowing of the church. There, God speaks to his people and makes known his will, makes known his grace. There are many other moments of mountains in Scripture. But there's also an important mountain that we hear about in the prophecies, the holy mountain of God. It's mentioned throughout Isaiah and Ezekiel. And in Ezekiel, it even gets paralleled with the Garden of Eden, making Eden itself almost something of a mountain. They have mountains where God speaks, where God makes his will known, where God renews the people. And in the case of Eden, creates the people. With that parallel to the holy mountain of God, that place of perfection, that place where God is going to come down and renew all things. Man is on the mountain and he experiences God, but he always goes back into the valley. Man never remains on the mountaintop. God speaks to him and he sends him back into the valley to labor and to work and to make this God known. One never just goes up to experience God. No one goes up to just simply remain on the mountain as if that's the whole point of it. One goes up in order to go back down. One goes up in order to be changed and renewed by God himself. One goes up and is made new so that he can go back down into the valley. To go back down into hardship, to go back down into struggle, to go back down into striving against the world and against your own sin nature. One never remains on the mountain. One must always go back to that valley of the shadow of death. For you are always facing that reality that we will talk about on Wednesday. That reality that sin leads to death. And that we are all sinners. But we go up that mountain to have a vision. To be, re to be renewed. To see God face to face. And that is what the disciples inadvertently get to do. They go up this mountain with Jesus as he prays. They begin dozing off. The mountaintop becomes this place of theophany and revelation for them. A theophany and revelation of who Jesus is, of hearing the Father speak. And as this is happening, Jesus is praying and his face turns and becomes glorious. His appearance changes. His clothing becomes dazzling white. 
One Bible translation says it becomes white as lightning. It's like a flash of lightning in a storm, suddenly lighting up everything, changing those clouds from black, ominous beings of destruction to this glorious white, lighting up the landscape that we all might see. And that is what happens with Jesus' clothes. This inner glory suddenly shines forth and he becomes dazzling white. His whole countenance changes. Not like Moses's that we heard about just now. Moses goes up on the mountain. Yes, he is in the presence of God and he comes down and his face is shining with the glory of God, but it is not a glory coming from within. It is a glory that he is absorbed. He's like those little glowing stickers or the glowing toys. You set them out in the sun and they absorb the sunlight and then you turn the lights off and they glow for a little while. That's Moses. He happens to absorb some of the glory of God so that when he leaves the glory of God and leaves the presence, it exudes out of him. It shines off of him. That happens simply because he encounters God. He encounters God and he shows forth glory, but it is not a glory from within. It is glory from outside that he has absorbed just a little bit of the purity of the God and of creation upon himself. And of course, Jesus is dazzling white, which is an indication of that he is more than a mere man, that the angels always appear in white clothing. They're described as beings in white. The armies of heaven are clothed in white. The martyrs wash their garments in the blood of the Lamb, and they come out white. They have been set apart. They have been made more than just mere men and women. They, have been, they are more. They are now heavenly beings shining forth with a glory that they never had before that God gives to them. But for Jesus... It transposes even his clothing into this white, glorious garment of holiness, of otherness, of difference. That he is a heavenly being come to earth, a heavenly being who is greater than all other heavenly beings. For he is the eternal one in flesh. He is the eternal one who has the divine nature of God. Truly and fully, for he is the Son of God. The second person of the Holy Trinity. One God and yet three persons sharing in the same divine essence, all partaking fully of who and what it means to be God. And yet, there is only one God that we worship. And His glory comes out of Him and transforms His face and transforms His clothing for all to see. For all to see and to behold. And suddenly Moses and Elijah appear alongside Him, talking to Him. And Luke is the only one who gives us what they talk about. Matthew and Mark merely just say that they're having a discussion, but here Luke says in verse 30 and 31, Behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. That word for departure right there in the Greek is exodus. It's the very word used to name the book of Exodus, which means departure from Egypt. The exodus is a departure. It's perfectly right that it can be translated as departure here, but it loses a bit of that, I think, picture of what Luke might have been getting at as he reveals what they're talking about, that Jesus is about to accomplish the great exodus for all of creation, that he is going to Jerusalem to die for the sins of the world, and that will pave the way for the great exodus, the one and only begotten Son of God dying for the sins of the world. Much as in Egypt, all the firstborn died because of the sins of Pharaoh, because he, were, he refused to let the people go. 
And he suffered punishment, the plague of the death of the firstborn. But here God takes that plague that is rightfully ours upon himself in Jesus. Jesus becomes the firstborn who is going to the cross to cause the exodus to occur. For in Egypt, when that, exit, when that death of the firstborn occurred, the Pharaoh kicked them out. He forced it. He finally said the exodus can happen. Go. Leave. The death of the firstborn led to the exodus occurring. And here, the death of the firstborn of all creation, Jesus himself will create a greater exodus of freedom from sin, of freedom from sinfulness, of freedom from death. The freedom from hell and the grave because that is what Jesus has come to do and they speak of that great departure, that great exodus that Jesus is going to do. And all this time, Peter and John and James are, are dozing. They're not fully aware of what's going on, but suddenly the brightness of Jesus and the brightness of Moses and Elijah shining forth suddenly awaken them. And they're confused. It's Moses and Elijah here with Jesus. The great two representatives of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets are here speaking about the exodus of Jesus. The whole point of the law and prophets being in writing to point us to the greater exodus that is in Jesus. And so, of course, it makes sense that they would show up to encourage Jesus, to speak to him, to see him in his humanity, for they have seen him in his divinity in heaven. And here they get to appear on earth and interact with him in his humanity as his divinity shines through. Speaking of the great and glorious redemption that is coming. That though it is a shameful experience, he will look through it for the joy that is at the end of redemption being brought forth. That Moses and Elijah are there to witness that this is what we wrote about. This is everything that we were about was you going to that cross, you going and redeeming the world. You creating an exodus above and beyond what the Father did in the Old Testament for Israel. Jesus is bringing a redemption to this world through his cross and resurrection. And on this mountain, he is, in a sense, being encouraged. He is revealing his glory. It's much like him being encouraged in the Garden of Gethsemane, the angel giving him strength as he prays. For Jesus is truly a man, he has fears. He can be afraid of what is to come because he is a man as well as being fully God. His personhood is a mystery to us, having both a divine will and a human will. And so here, this mountaintop experience for Jesus is a place of building up, a place of preparation, a place of sending forth for he leaves this mountain and goes back down into the world. But in this moment when Mo when Peter and James and John wake up. Peter blurts out, let us make tents for you. Let us do something. But then the cloud appears because Peter doesn't know what he's talking about. Some, may, some think that this is a moment where the concept of the, the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles comes out in Peter's mind of seeing this glorious moment, of hearing about the Exodus, and suddenly saying, let us build tents. Let us camp out here. As we hear about this exodus and make tents for you, just like we do in the Feast of Booths, in order to remember the original exodus, we'll commemorate the coming exodus, whatever that means. But Peter doesn't know what he's talking about. He's confused. He's just blurting things out because that's what Peter so often does. But before anything can be done, the cloud came and overshadowed them, the theophany of the Father appearing. 
And he speaks out of this cloud. The cloud is like a covering for the Father so that no one can see him, but they can hear his voice and know that he is there. Just as the cloud came down at Sinai and just as the Holy Spirit descended from the cloud above at Jesus' baptism and God spoke out of the cloud in all of these instances. And here he says words very similar. This is my son, my chosen one. And he tells them, hear him, listen to him, to him alone, pay attention. And Peter and James and John are more and more being scared out of their minds because they don't understand or grasp what is happening here as they are enveloped in this cloud. And we see that they don't need to make a tent for Jesus or Moses or Elijah, for the cloud comes down and covers them. But we are pointed to the reality here when that cloud departs after saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. After the voice speaks and the cloud vanishes, they look and they see only Jesus. Jesus alone is found before them because Jesus alone is the new tent. He is the new tabernacle. He is the new temple for us. We need not make tents for Jesus. We need not try to make a dwelling for him, for God's presence to come and be in. For Jesus himself is now that presence of God in our midst. He is the true tabernacle. He is the word the eternal word who has come and tabernacled amongst us, that tabernacles even now with us, the presence of God himself for us and to us. There is no need for a tent to be made for God himself, as I said, knitted a tent for himself. He made a temple for himself by knitting together Jesus' flesh and blood in the womb of Mary, uniting divinity with humanity, uniting the Son of God himself to a human nature to humanity itself, to be born of the Virgin Mary, to grow up in the arms of Mary and Joseph, and to be sent forth as one who proclaims the good news of the kingdom that is coming, who will cause that kingdom to come by his very death and resurrection. We need no tent for Jesus, for he is the tent of the Holy Spirit. He is the tent of God the Father. He is the tent of the presence of God himself. And this is driven home with that Jesus being alone. In that final moment, Jesus alone is who is left. The law and the prophets, they fade away because they have accomplished their purpose to point us to Jesus. Moses and Elijah don't need to be there anymore because now the disciples' eyes are directed only to Jesus to see him there after hearing that he is the chosen one. He is the Son of God, the beloved one the one in whom God is well pleased, and that they are now to listen to him. For he will interpret the law and the prophets for them. He will give them the understanding that they need. They need not make tents. They need not depend on works. All that need is gone, and all that is left is Jesus. That was all they needed to see. That was who they needed to see. All of their strivings can be put away. All of our strivings are thrown down. For before us is Jesus alone. Before the disciples was only Jesus. There all by himself, after all this gloriousness, out of this transfiguration, this revealing of his divine nature before the disciples, it is only Jesus now before them. The divine nature hidden back underneath his humanity. The divine nature unseen by them now, but them having seen it know that it is there. They don't grasp it, they don't understand it. They can't know what it means. It's not until after 
his death and resurrection and ascension, that it finally clicks and they understand the fullness of the meaning of this. Everything points to Jesus alone. We only need to see Jesus for all of the work of the prophets. All the work of the law are found completed in Jesus. All that they said is fulfilled by Jesus himself. All of those stories of sacrifice, all of those stories of kings, all of those stories of reckless and corrupt judges, the stories of the idolatry of the people, the story of the flood and of creation, all of that is to point us to Jesus himself, to guide our eyes to our need, to guide our eyes to see that these seemingly random stories point to Jesus as the fulfillment of what they are directing our eyes to to fulfill the brokenness, to undo the brokenness, to renew us out of our brokenness. Our eyes are to look only to Jesus and nothing else. Jesus alone is what our eyes should rest upon, not our works, not even our sins. Not our doings or our strivings or our failures, nothing should we think on except Jesus alone. He is at the center he is the place where we are called to place our eyes and our attention. This is where we begin preparing our hearts for Lent. And yes, as you enter into Lent, I encourage you to fast, to spend extra time in prayer, to make sacrifice of almsgiving, to do good deeds, to be renewed in heart and mind. Not because those things are going to make you better before God, but because those things are the very outworking of the transformative power of God in you. And the season of Lent is a moment for us to step back and to reflect and to embrace the fact that we are going to die and therefore through knowing that we are going to die, we can be free to do the work of God in this world. For we have nothing to worry about for we have Jesus alone on the cross dying for our sins and being raised back to life to renew us. And this theophany, this transfiguration is the encouragement that we need to Prepare our hearts for Lent. For we know that it is God himself on the Mount of Transfiguration who then goes back down into the valley, into the literal valley of the shadow of death. For he is at the end of that valley dying for our sins. Our eyes are to look on Jesus and watch him go to that cross, watch him walk through that valley of the shadow of death, and then to take up our cross and walk through that valley of the shadow of death. Because we have him beside us, we have him before us, we have him behind us. And we can hear him, for he is the chosen one. We can listen to him, for he is the salvation of this world. Nothing in this world will save us but him alone. No one else will remake you, no one else will receive you where you are and transform you into what you know you are to become. Transform you into a new creation to undo that brokenness that we all know deep down is part of us. Jesus alone is the one who will do that. Jesus alone is the one who will transform us into the true people of God. And so let us set our eyes ever and forever on Jesus alone. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.